Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast today. We're going to set a record today. Today's record is the furthest interview that we've ever done. This person is Captain Darren Davis. He runs something called Game Fishing Asia. It is a charter service in the Andaman Islands, and it looks so cool. If you don't know where the Andaman Islands are, it's basically um, a chain of, I think he said, 50 different islands. And he, in his words, it's in the middle of nowhere. But you know what happens in the middle of nowhere. Usually very little fishing pressure. And in this case, massive, really big GTs, um, giant trevally, among many other fish. We go over all the ways that he's fishing for them, the tackle that he's using, travel to the Andaman Islands if you wanted to go there and so much more. It was a very good conversation with Darren Davis, and it's coming to you right now. Hi, I'm Darren Davis. I'm from Game Fishing Asia in the Andaman Islands, and I'm on the Tom Rowland podcast. Hey, everybody. Before we get started with this episode, I want to tell you about our giveaway that we're having this month, as we have a giveaway every month. This month is special. It is a Daiwa BG MQ reel from our friends at Daiwa and Tackle Direct, and that is a battle axe reel. You can go into the description under this podcast, and you can learn how to enter. Good luck. Darren Davis. Okay, so you set the record for the furthest away of any guests. I've had some guests from Australia, but I think the Andaman Islands are further. Tell me where the Andaman Islands are. Many, many people might not be familiar with that. Okay, so the Andaman Islands are located uh, in the Bay of Bengal, which is between India, the mainland India, and Thailand. We are actually closer to Thailand. So Thailand is just about 450 nautical miles away. And if you look at mainland India, it's about 1,500 nautical miles away. So we are pretty much in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and it's a volcanic chain of islands. So it's a very special place to All fish. Atolls, the volcanic chain of islands, are, would that be atolls? No. In fact, this is more, you see the Andaman Island chain, if you look at the map, is divided into the Andamans in the north and then the Nicobars as you go further south. Okay. Now, the Andaman Islands are pure volcanic, so you've got its newfold mountains. This, this range uh, goes all the way from Indonesia into the Himalayas. So it's where uh, it's like a parallel mountain range that forms has formed a chain of islands. And uh, these are volcanic islands, so it's, it's mainly rocky outcrops, coral reefs, deep drop-offs, passages between islands. So it's it's ideal territory, basically. Wow. And then what's the water depth just off the beach there? Does it drop off significantly? So we, yeah. So we've got shallows. So we, we've got channels between islands. Uh, and you can get pretty shallow, say, from about um, 11, 12 meters, something like that. You know, even less than that in places. But then once you hit the drop-offs... We're looking at going down to about over 2,000 meters. Wow, you know, 2, and then it just meters. comes vertically up again, where you've got uh, undersea mounts and parallel range, uh, parallel ridges. So there's a lot of undiscovered water still in the area. Wow! And so, how long have you been fishing there? My first trip over to the Andaman Islands was 2005. So that's what about uh, eighteen years now. Eighteen years, wow, that's awesome. So you, uh, there's there's enough uh, tourism in the Andaman Islands and enough uh, people that want to fish that you can you can support your your guide service there. 
Yeah, see, so we were one of the first people to start. In fact, in India, um, if I have to go back, I was first doing a lot of uh, river fishing, freshwater fishing. And, uh, you know, when extreme tropical fishing was just about getting started out, is when I made my first trip across to the Andamans. And uh, one of the things that has that makes the place special that even though it's been a charter destination for about 18 years now, more than 18 years, um, you still have an incredible variety and density of fish, you know, that's difficult to see in many other parts, many other destinations worldwide. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to get to all the things that you're fishing for, but we have a segment on the show that we call the hot seat. And it's going to be a good way for the guests to get to know you and for me to get to know you a little bit. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions and just whichever one comes, whichever one you think it's kind of either or questions, whichever one you think you just, you just say, there's no right answer. Okay. So it usually takes about a minute All right. and we're going to go for the hot seat right now. Okay. You ready? Chocolate or yep. vanilla? Vanilla. Android or iPhone? iPhone. Favorite fish? Dogtooth tuna. Nice. Piece of technology you rely on heavily? GPS. One thing you're afraid of? Shark. <laughs> Text or can calls? Can I change it? Sure, you can change it. Saltwater crocodiles. Saltwater crocodiles. Me too. Uh, a movie that makes you laugh. What was the last one? Haven't seen a comedy lately. Okay. Uh, sunrise or sunset? Sunset. Winter Olympics or Summer Olympics? Summer, Summer Olympics. Coffee, tea, or energy drink? Coffee, any day. River or lake? Lake. Spinning rod or conventional? I'll tell you why later. Okay. Spinning rod or conventional? Say that again, Tom. S spinning rod or conventional tackle? Both. Both. Okay, good. You made it through. Okay, cool. So, uh, why why a lake? Or no, why a river? What did you say? A river or a lake? I said lake. I said lake. The reason why is I've started fishing freshwater for snakehead. Okay. Which I think is an invasive species in it is. the States. It is invasive, we've but it's very fishing, popular. We've been, yeah, we've been fishing snakehead here for the last... Uh, I don't know, I think I grew up fishing snakehead, so maybe 30-odd years. And uh, some of the best snakehead fishing that we have is in big man-made reservoirs. Okay. So that's why I chose a lake over a river. Now, with your snakehead, that's a native species where you, where you were fishing for them? Is that correct? Yes. Okay, yes. and um, yes. what, how, how big would they get in, in their native range? So the biggest ones we've got is about in the 13 to 15 pound range. Okay. And uh, I have seen pictures of those that are up to about 20 pounds. Wow. That's really big. I don't believe that they get that big here. They're, they're moving around. They're, they're, especially in the state of Florida, there's a lot of them. Uh, it's warm. And, uh, but I don't think they get that big. I think that would be an outsized one here. That would be cool. So what's the, what's the uh, tactic for fishing for the, the big snakeheads where you were fishing? Well, uh, we use very similar gear to what you'll use for bass. It's, it's the sprows and, uh, you know, the bronze eye frogs and the, uh, the, the poppers um, with, a, with, with a bait casting setup. Uh, we sometimes use uh, spinner baits or even just the plain old... Uh, Colorado blades with uh, homemade spinners. It's pretty simple, actually, but it just depends where you're fishing them, what kind of structure you have. 
some of the lakes and reservoirs, you know, there's a lot of, uh, um, you know, sunken trees and, you know, rocky areas. So it just depends, you know, where you are. If you're fishing heavily covered uh, waters, you know, then you'd use more of the frog or uh, it depends where the fish are holding, really. You know, if, if you want to stay below the surface and not come up for surface uh, lures, then, uh, of course, you'd want to fish deeper and maybe even go on to your crankbaits and stuff right. like that. What, but uh, otherwise, otherwise, yeah. What, what, what is the, the native range? Where, where were you fishing them? What country? I fished for snakehead mainly India now. India. Mainly in India. Okay. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, so you were uh, kind of a freshwater guide. You're fishing for snakehead. What other species were you fishing for in India? Well, I used to fish for the masia. Okay. The oh, masia, the masia. Uh, yes. yes. Tell me about that fish. That is a fish that uh, so many fly anglers here in the United States have at the very top of their list. And tell me, tell me about that fish. What makes that fish special? Okay, so there's two types of masia that we have, okay, which are mainly uh, sought after by the sport fishing fraternity, as it were. Uh, there's the southern marcia, which is the humpback marcia, and that's the biggest one. That goes to over 100 pounds. Now, those unfortunately have become really rare to find, and uh, you're not really allowed to fish for them anymore. This is the golden marcia, the golden marcia that I'm talking about. And then as you go towards northern India, you have the Himalayan golden marcia. And that is a fish which stays in uh, glacial fed, fed rivers, uh, colder running water. And that's the one which a lot of anglers attempt to catch on fly, spinner, hard body lure and so forth. The main difference between the two of them is this: the southern marcia was more of a fish that would take live bait or, you know, like carp baits, mm -hmm. whereas uh, the northern marcia is more predatory, will take lures more actively. So that's, that's, that's about it with the marcia fishing. It's, it's quite tough. It's difficult, not easy. Yeah. Um, you need to spend a lot of time, effort. Your fishing trip can go off if you have rains up in the Himalayas, the water turns chocolate and uh, muddy and you could lose out on a whole trip. So a lot of luck comes into play. Yeah. I've heard that um, there's a lot of uh, fishing rights that it is a difficult thing to kind of uh, be able to fish where those fish are, that a lot of that is private land and, and, not, and, and anglers are not able to get in there. Is that true or not? Um, I've even heard that royalty of sorts owns most of the places that are that are really good to fish but i don't know i've never i've never fished for the masir but i i would love to so these are just the things that some of my clients have told me see what happens with the masia and its habitat is mainly through protected uh, forest areas you know which go into uh, reserve forest or national park and getting permits to actually fish these areas is not something that's easy to come by with the, uh, the laws that we have in place. Where you can fish for the Masia would be in places outside the reserve area, which is where they are also susceptible to being, uh, you know, fished by other methods if they are not mm -hmm. protected. So, in effect... Uh, being able to protect the fish has been an ongoing issue and uh, getting places within or from uh, different states where they actually allow you to fish for the fish for the masia within uh, protected or reserved forest has been the biggest challenge so far. So was that one of the reasons why you started to venture out into saltwater and, and to eventually get to the Andamans? It was. It was one of the reasons. And then, you know, it was also the novelty. You know, when we thought of, uh, uh, I, I must admit that before I fished saltwater, I thought that the Marcia tackle was the heaviest that you could get, you know. So 
the first time I went over to the Andaman Islands, we took uh, a lot of Marcia tackle and just scaled it up with a few larger lures and stuff like that. And just realized it was absolute didn't work. We were <laughs> busted off so many times. We didn't know what hit us from where, you know, and then it left you saying, yeah, what do I do next? <laughs> and so, um, how did you, how did you learn about the, uh, the Andaman fishery and eventually become a, a, a guide or, or start your charter surface over there? Just a lot of trips or, or did you go there once and stay? No, it was, so we basically, the first time I made a trip there was a complete uh, eye opener. We didn't really catch much, we just realized what type of fish are out there. The second time we did a lot more research, I must admit, and um, did a lot more research, bought a lot better tackle. I got my first Stella before I made the next trip there. But again, you know, um, even the second trip, we fished off a local boat. And that, I must say, was interesting because you're trying to fight GTs and cast of this wooden boat, long canoe dugout. And uh, the planks on it that, you know, sort of gave you the deck area were like piano keys every time you stood on them. <laughs> we were trying to catch GTs with that. So it was interesting. It was a bit scary as well. But those, I think I was a lot younger then, prone to a bit more stupidity than now. So, so, yeah, so that's where it went from there. And then we realized, uh, rather, I realized that there was a lot of potential to actually run a charter. And uh, that's when we, uh, when I went and got my uh, first boat in. And uh, we started with one small boat. So that was, that was how it started. And from there, I have to say that we had... Uh, there was an Italian fisherman who had confidence to come out and fish with uh, my company uh, by the name of Nicola Singarelli. He came out and, you know, the one trip that we did with him uh, was what showed me the way to start looking for places and how to go about setting up this charter. And that was in our first year that we were there. So that got us rolling, you know, and so I really have to be thankful for that one trip that we did. Yeah. And um, did you tell me about the tourism in the Andaman Islands? Where is most of that tourism coming from? You got a lot of different places uh, near you, um, but is there a place where the majority of the tourism comes from? Or um, your anglers? See, uh, before, uh, and I would say, um, we have to look at it over, over time. So initially, there used to be a lot of uh, people coming in from Israel. And uh, there, there were quite a few Europeans also who would come in. But what, so this I'm talking about, say, about eight, ten years ago. And then it's changed now because India has got a very... A, a, a booming tourism market and uh, with that we see a lot of tourists now yes so i said yes so now what's happening is uh, there's been a big increase you know local tourism within india itself is booming and there are a lot of people especially after this uh, covid pandemic that actually want to get out and do a lot of adventure stuff and visit uh, remote places so the Andamans is very popular locally. Um, internationally, though, I think we are still a bit stuck uh, as the airlines seem to recover because there's a, the airfares to get over from Europe and the US have kind of spiked. They almost double to double than what it was pre-COVID levels. So I think hopefully this year, you know, once everyone's fears have kind of been put to rest, we should see... Uh, tourism from people outside of India, foreign tourism coming yeah. back to the Andaman Islands in a big well, way. Well, I certainly hope so. And you have, uh, when we look at your Instagram, Ben, pull up his Instagram if you can. When we look at your Instagram, it is full of 
really nice GTs. And the GT is a fish that's very popular here. We have another fish that's similar to it and more um, widespread. They don't get as large as the GT, but we call it a Jack Crevel. And we have a whole line, a whole uh, family of Jacks that, that we fish for. And they're not, um, they're not as revered as the giant Trevally. Um, in fact, some people consider them a, a trash fish. I do not. They've saved the day for me more times than, than I could ever count. But the GTs that you have, like any of these ones that you're pulling up, Ben, are really nice ones. Tell me about the GT fishery um, out, off the Andaman Islands. Like, like, tell me about like what a day looks like. Are you going um, far off of the of the islands? Are you casting plugs with spinning rods? Are you trolling? Like, tell me, tell me about the the actual fishing and how a day might go over there. Okay, so what happens is, uh, Tom, is that basically we the Andaman Islands is. Uh, 500 570 odd islands just that one chain so we've got a huge area to play with and uh, with this big area i think the most important thing that happens is being able to not overfish over pressurize the area so i break up where we fish how many days we fish which areas we target when we target the areas so uh, we are fishing sometimes close, uh, sometimes we move, say, about 65 nautical miles away for a day trip. And there are other days where we go up to 80 nautical miles. But it's just, you know, so that we uh, are able to um, not pressurize areas, which is very important, and be able to keep getting uh, clients put them onto really good sized fish, you know, so they have a, a real experience when it comes to catching GTs. Now, if I just give you some brief data, um, we do approximately 2000 GTs a year in a season, which is about say six months. That's a lot of GTs landed and it's not, uh, um, it's not, um, when you think about the number of fish that are missed or hook up missed and stuff, the number is far more than that. So, okay, coming back to a typical day, a typical day we start out by about, say, half six in the morning after breakfast. And then most of the times, I think the minimum run that we do to get to the closest spots from, depending again, depends where we are. If we are uh, based out of Port Blair or, you know, based yourself further south or more north, um, Generally, the, the average run would be about 45 minutes to an hour to the nearest spot. And then what we do, a general day goes, we try to optimize the fishing time in such a way that we are on the best spots at the best times. You know, because three things. You want to have current, structure, and bait. And if we can get these three things happening at the right time, you're going to put clients on GTs. So, yeah, so we want to be at the right spot, right time. So you have that best uh, period to go and catch your trophy fish. Um, there are other times of the day, you know, then we can, and this, what we do, our speciality rather is topwater casting. So it is the popping for GTs and the jigging. So we don't really mess around with too much of trolling or bait fishing unless it's specifically asked for. So a lot of this fishing is actually knowing the area intimately and being able to hunt your fish, you know, because I think the most important thing with this type of fishing is the visual aspect of it. And that's what keeps bringing people back for, you know, because there's nothing like looking at a monster GT just <laughs> make a lure disappear it's there one minute and then the next minute it's gone and, you know, mayhem has happened. Yeah. You know, they've got people clinging on for dear life and uh, <laughs> if they no, get that, through that those fish, first few seconds, then there's... It, it's so, it's such an amazing fish. I've had the opportunity to fish for them in a couple of different places. In Christmas Island, uh, that it's way out, um, kind of 
towards Fiji and then um, also in Australia. Yeah. Um, but the ones that are on your Instagram, how big are how what was your average fish, your GT? Let's just talk about GTs right now. What what do you think the average GT that you're catching out of these 2000? What do you think the average weight is? So in, when we talk of averages, I'd say the average size is between 10 and 15 kilos. That's, And I think that is because there's just like, I think the Andaman Islands are a breeding ground for them. Um, you then start to see like in a season, we catch maybe about 60, 70 fish that are over 30 kilos. Mm. And uh, probably about 40 to 45 that are over the 40, 50 kilo mark. 50 you know, so kilos. Look at that. Yeah. 50 kilos, 110 pounds. That's that's amazing. 110 pound GT. Okay, so I have so many questions, but go ahead and tell me more about uh, <laughs> the the different sizes of fish that you're catching. And I'm su I'm assuming that they're just like any other fish. There are certain times of the year that are. Are, are a little more conducive to catching the big ones than other times of the year or certain places or certain weather conditions that allow you to get to where the big ones are. Um, but that would be interesting to know as well. Yeah, it's, 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 it's quite complicated actually uh, because we have, and these fish move around. I mean, there's no fish that, uh, you know, just stay in one place throughout the season. They keep moving around. And apparently, GTs have a range of about 600 uh, miles. So, you know, they can move significant distances. And they also, it's also a fish that you can find in about 120 meters water depth to uh, three meters water depth or meter and a half water depth. You know, so there's, there's uh, a big range that you can find the fish. But generally, what happens is, um, we, in the Andaman Islands at least, we get a lot of, uh, because it's part of the Bay of Bengal, you get a lot of water coming in from the big Himalayan rivers such as the Brahmaputra and the Ganga and the Ganges. Um, so the best time is once the northeast monsoon has kind of taken uh, all this fresh water out of the system. You know, and that normally happens um, by about January. Again, depends on how strong a monsoon we have. So it is a bit technical and then also depends, you know, you, uh, which way the tide runs, you know. So if we have um, the falling tide, then it's, it's running from east to west and the rising tide is generally from west to east. So you fish different sides of the island on different tides, you know, different drop-offs do different things at different times. So, yes, any island chain, it's, 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 it's got its own uh, idiosyncrasies, as it were, you know, it's got its own little ways to fish and, and yeah. find spots and, you know, even the fish where they hold is different, you know, sometimes you can find them, like I said, it, it, it just depends what type of fishing you know how you want to target them right and then you've got to tailor your day to actually start searching for fish depending on what your clients want to do yeah we uh where we are so we customize where we are is in the at, at the base of florida then there's the florida keys that hang off it's a chain of islands just like just like you're talking about not not quite like what you're talking about because we don't drop off to six thousand feet right off we might get two thousand feet off and then you got to go way further out to get deeper. But on the other side of the islands is is Florida Bay, and uh, we have a interesting tide range and tide differences where where we're fishing. And all through the state of Florida, um, there are a lot of tide differences. Tell me about the way the tides work there. Is is it a big tide range uh, between low tide and high tide? Like how many feet or meters are we talking about uh, the difference between low tide and high tide where you are? Yeah, so you're looking at like if we, yes. Um, so the way the tide range is, it's roughly about six hours, uh, you know, six, uh, 12 hours, but six hours, one tide higher, six hours to high, six hours to low. So we have roughly four tides in a day. Mm -hmm. And uh, the maximum 
that we look at over spring tides would be a three meter okay. tidal range, you know, between low tide and high tide. And three meters, but you know what, when you have to look at it, you look at it in the context of an island and you look at it in the context of passages, channels between islands and drop-offs. And that actually can in some on some days, you know, maybe be around three and a half knots of current with the tidal range. You know, and the current is what plays the biggest part because it's water movement. Yes. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when I fished in Sri Lanka, again for GTs, and I, that was something that I explored and enjoyed doing, um, the maximum tidal range, because it's part of the Indian Oceans, right, on the Indian Ocean was 50 centimeters. That's not even <laughs> a foot and a half, just yeah. about over a foot and a half on spring tides. And it didn't make a difference because they weren't, uh, the fish there didn't feed on uh, on your tides. They fed more on ocean current. You know, uh -huh. they ocean current ocean going currents. over the reef, you catch fish. And if you didn't, there, there were no fish. Right. Yes. So very different. You know, each of these places is... Uh, Incredibly different. And one of the things I picked up on which I was fishing there, which is really interesting, is if you have a freshwater system that empties into the sea or it's got tidal flow going in and out, yes, then that's the area that you want to fish, you know, when uh -huh. these, you've got these small change of tides and stuff like that, you know. Yes. So, and it, it worked. We put it to great use uh, fishing in the Andaman Islands. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. That uh, those those estuary areas where the rivers come in, they're they're also great where we are um, as as well. Those are fantastic areas where you have a river coming in, or and that's what I did in Australia. I was at the uh, the Bay of Carpentaria at the top of Australia, and there are rivers that just flow right in, and we would fish every single one of those river mouths, and that was where we got some of the best the best fishing. That wasn't where we caught the GTs, but it was where we caught. Um, many of the other of the other fish that they have there. Tell me about tell me about the tackle that you're using when you're casting lures for these fish that that you might catch a hundred and ten pound GT. What can you go over your rig and what and and just what you're using, what knots, everything. I mean, we've got some very avid fishermen on here that would love to to hear what the what the rig looks like for for those big GT. Okay, so when it comes to GTs, I would say that, you know, you don't want to mess around. I mean, there are people who've caught GTs on light tackle, but I've seen just far too many bust off and, or even if you manage to land it, the fight is so long that you actually end up, the fish doesn't make. Right. So a GT fight is brutal, it's short, and it's really, really tough on your tackle. Okay, so if your tackle has got the smallest glitch or uh, it's not up to the mark in some small way, it's going to be found out. Um, personally, I think your let's start with the reels. Uh, either the Shimano Stellas or the Daiwa Saltigas would be about the best that you could use. Uh, it's what I use personally. Uh, fishing yeah, rod-wise... Um, yeah, salt eager. Yeah. Uh, uh, fishing rod wise, I would say there are a lot of Japanese guys, Japanese manufacturers that are really good. You've got your ripple fish. What about what about just the uh, length and the pounders. and the weight of the rod? Like the length and the 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 action of the rod. Uh, what are you looking for with one that you're going to throw the lures with? I I would say length wise, you're looking at at least seven and a half feet. Because you and you want okay. uh, a stiff action, a, a, you know, a fast action. It should have not much. Shouldn't be a slow taper. Because the whole thing about casting poppers, um, stick baits is again different. Um, you want the rod to have flex because that's what imparts the action into the lure. But with poppers, you want a stiff rod, uh, um, a fast action. The, both your rods, I would say the minimum length for this type of fishing is about seven and a half feet. Uh, the rating, um, we normally talk in terms of P line. So if I say P line, you're talking about minimum 80 pound. 
Okay. I prefer 100. Uh, but again, it also depends on uh, an angler's ability to use heavier stuff. So if you can use, say, P10, P12, which is 130, 150-pound uh, braided line, um, all day, all day, mind you, when I talk about this type of fishing, it's it's a brutal day because it starts about 7.38 in the morning and you don't come back. If you leave at 6 in the morning and you're back by 5 in the evening, you've been out in a tropical furnace <laughs> casting these lures that, you know, weigh up to, say, 200 grams each. And uh, you don't know when you're going to get a strike from a GT that's going to really uh, fight you hard for at least 10 minutes. So it takes it out of you. So the rods, the tackle needs to stand up. Your rods, like we said, Saltiga for the real the Shimano Stellas, rods about seven and a half. I'd say max is the, on the top of the lengthwise would be about eight, eight and a half. Again, comes down to being able to carry these rods across and travel with them because most of them are, you know, the butt joint and then just long section of blank. Uh, they are coming out with travel rods now. There are certain companies doing it which, you know, have really improved in quality. Um, so that would make things a lot easier to uh, use. The lures, like I said, uh, I would say you start off at about 130 grams because you want your poppers to actually create that splash uh, if it's choppy or if there's a bit of wind and chopping fish, they react to sound. They react to sound and bubble trail. And this is, that's how these lures work and what makes this fishing so visually spectacular. Um, so your stick baits as well, you know, you can have anything from about 110 grams going all the way up to about 200, 250. And again, coming back to capability of what, as an angler coming out can, you know, actually use for five or six days. Um, with the lines, I would say a hundred pound braid minimum. Your leaders uh, is the important one. Uh, and uh, that one is, I would say we start at about 150, 150 pounds and go up to about 200. Do you use fluorocarbon or, or Most, mono? Uh, I prefer mono, okay. nylon, no floral, even for jigging. I just feel that it's too stiff. And uh, you know what's really important? This is, a, this is good you brought that point up, actually. You need to have some flex or some kind of elasticity in the system. And now when you talk about a 100-pound braided line, 200-pound leader, uh, tied together with an SG knot, you've really not got any stretch in the system. And uh, if you're fishing drags, which are, you know, maybe in excess of 10 kilos of drag, and the GT is going to put an equivalent of more pressure on the other end of you, the only thing that happens is you start opening hooks. Yeah. No matter what size hooks you put on, you'll open hooks. So you need to be able to put in some kind of uh, uh, stretch into the system. And for this, what I've done is like, of course, I've uh, it was a, lot, a big learning curve, but something that I saw out of what the guys at uh, Nomad in Australia did a long mm -hmm. time ago, we improvised that to make a twisted leader, which actually uh, works like a bungee cord. Yep. Yeah. Is so, that with a bit? So that's what that's that's what can you explain how you do that twisted leader? Is that a bimini twist on both ends so that it's so it's got a little little twist in it or how how are you doing that? Okay, so the twisted leader is made uh, separately. So it's actually a it's a, you twist your nylon leader so say maybe a 130 pounds leader you double it back on itself. Okay. Um and you can use various methods. You know, some people use a hand drill. There are others who uh, use a little hook on a support. But there are various methods to use it. And then uh, once it gets woven together, I actually 
put a video on our YouTube, on our Insta channel, and then maybe it'll be easier for people to figure out. Um, but what you do is from there, once you've twisted this leader, you attach to the other, to one end, you get a loop, an eye, an eyelid. And at the other end, what you do is you tie a figure of eight knot to a heavier leader. So that might be 200, 220, whatever it is. So you've got a loop at one end and uh, the other end of the leader is your heavy leader. What you can do then is on your braided line, your main line, you can either tie a bimini, which will give you a small loop at the end. Or what you can do is if you're using hollow braided line, which I actually prefer using, you know, things like I think there's uh, Jerry Brown makes some awesome line. And uh, there's tough XP as well, the guide's choice, hollow core spectra, which is also up there. Uh, you can do and make an eye slice, you know, so you have a small eye. And then you join this by a cat's paw, mm -hmm. you know, so similar to how you tie a fly line, you know, very similar to that. Right. But if you, and you're attaching, you're attaching the braid to the 150 pound loop to loop like that yeah and how are you yeah. putting a loop in the how are, how do you put a loop in your 150 pound so like i said what you do is you take a length of a 150 pound line and then you know if you can support it off a hook or or a you know you tie one end to a you have one hand one end in each hand and you kind of just wrap it around each other Without yeah. any pressure. Yeah, I'm getting that it part. It will but... form an eyelet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, I see what you're, I see what you're doing. I see. So then that loop that you're creating, there's no other knot or, yes. or, or, um, uh, any anything there. It's just, it's just nice and smooth. So that'll go in and out of the guides nice and smoothly. I'd love to see that video and share it with my audience, and then uh, I can show them how to do that. I know I see what you're doing there. That's cool. And so on the other end, after you've created that loop, on the other end, then that's where you're tying the figure eight, and then you're attaching it to the leader? The heavier leader. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And, then, and you just and do that twisted, with a... Twisted. You do that with just the figure eight, or what's the connection there? You mentioned an FG knot somewhere in the system. So the FG knot, yeah, the FG knot, see, so this is my personal setup. I've used this and one of the reasons why I use it is because it's extremely durable. But it is a bit painful to change if you have a bust off or mm -hmm. um, you get a wind knot and have to cut your line when casting. This does happen. So what I do is I normally just carry a spare spool with me, you know, so I can just take this off and change spools. And uh, I'm fishing in five minutes. But the other connection, the other connection which also works very well is just um, an FG knot tied directly to your leader. You know, your main line as braid and then you put and tie an FG knot to your leader. In this case, the only thing I would suggest is, you know, you use a slightly longer leader so you're looking at at least... Uh, span so you're talking of about two meters there so that is another reason where if you're using nylon two meters of nylon will stretch mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know there is a bit of stretch in it compared to if you only went down to about three feet or yard or meter or so so th these are the two connections yeah for jigging and stuff like that we've talked only about popping but for jigging and stuff it's pure FG knot, you know, we don't use these crystal leaders. And, and FGs what, what size braid are you using for the jigging? Jigging, okay. With the jigging, I like to be able to get the jigs down deep and you need to be able to keep your line straight. So you've got to fish the lightest that you can fish. Uh, P3 to P5 maximum. So P3, if we take, is 50 pounds and P5 would be in the region of about 70, 75 pound. Okay. Day. Okay. And are you, uh, That's it. when you're, when you're, when you're doing the jigging, are you, are you speed jigging or, or what we call slow pitch jigging where you're, 
where and it's two different techniques with two different types of tackle, really. Um, but can you explain how how you're catching the fish, jigging, you're dropping down, how deep, keeping the line straight, and how how are you moving that jig to get the bite? Okay, so what happens is when we're jigging, a lot of it depends on the captain. The captain calling out where the fish are marking. Okay, so you might have in, and what depth you're fishing at. So if you're fishing, say, um, 70 meters of water, let's say 70 meters, 210, 200 feet of water, and you've got fish that are marking in the upper third of the water column, you know, then there's no point in dropping your jig all the way down 200 right. feet. So right. the captain has actually got to call out and, you know, tell you where the fish are marking, which is why uh, your indicator braids now, you know, which have markings every five feet, 10 meters or whatever it is, uh, have become very popular for jigging. So you know how deep your jig is, where it is in the water column. Um so with jigging now, again, with the action, uh, it just depends what the fish want. And we've seen that, you know, in the Andamans, at least if I'm talking about it, a lot of fish like you to go fast. Okay. And the faster you go with erratic pauses, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy action or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know, working like a, a speed maniac or something like that. <laughs> But as long as you're going fast and you can, you know, vary the action a bit with pauses and you, is where we find we have a lot of stripes. And there are other guys who are absolute masters with uh, slow pitch jigging. Slow pitch, pitch jigging is a lot closer to the bottom. Uh, whereas if you have fish, midwater fish, um, one of the things I really like is midwater fish. Midwater fish means predators for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be anything. It could be your GTs, could be dog tooth and you actually can see, you know, if you see uh, schools of Bonito, you know, look at them on the transducer and on, on the uh, fish finder screen. And you're able to see where the predators are. Then it becomes a lot more interesting because you're waiting for guys to see how they kind of react to everything. That's really cool. Um, so, so many different ways. Uh to fish for the for the GT, and that's mostly what we've talked about. What are the other species of fish that you that you catch over there regularly? You mentioned the dog tooth tuna; that's one that we're familiar with. Um, what what other type of fish are you catching regularly or targeting? Okay, so let's yeah, let's see. So um, we get a lot of um, Spanish mackerel. Then uh, we get a whole lot of groupers. You know, all the way from your red and your red coral trout, your saddleback grouper, um, to the Goliath groupers. You know, we were, I think we fought one on jig that was about 180 kilos. 180 which kilos. Which is That's... like what, close to 400 pounds? Yeah, 400 pounds. Yeah. Now, they had that, they had a fish. Yeah, now, so... we have a Goliath grouper in Florida. And then when I went to Australia, they called it a Queensland groper. It looked almost exactly the same. And uh, so the, the fish that you're calling a Goliath grouper, are you familiar with, with what we call a Goliath grouper and how similar do you think those fish are? Are they the same fish or, or, or slightly different? It's, it's, it's slightly different. In fact, if you scroll down on our page, it's, uh, there's, there's a picture of one of those uh, See if you can massive find that, ben. Goliath groupers. On the Instagram, um, Ben? It's slightly scroll, different because... Scroll down. Go ahead. I'm sorry. These have got uh, the fins and the tail has got a gold band, you know, it's just like a little bit. Oh, that's gold one band. of the ways to, yeah. I think you'd have to stroll a lot, lot further down. He says it's way down there. Oh, sailfish, huh? You have sailfish? Yes, we catch sailfish. We catch sailfish. Then you've got a whole lot of reef species. Um, uh, what about mar like, marlin um, species? Job fish. Oh, okay. Marlin, we have. We've got the black and the blue. Okay. In fact, I've caught a couple, but it's not something that we uh, do very seriously. You know, it's only when people come and ask us. And uh, trevallies, within the trevallies itself, you've got a, um, a whole 
lot of trivallies, you know, it's bluefin trivalli and um, uh, gold spot trivalli, golden trivalli. There's so many, so many. Have we passed it yet, you think? You Say that again, of, Tom. Ha, have we passed the, the Goliath over here on your uh, Instagram? Can I you see the Instagram? Okay. Uh, yeah, there's I a lot of really interesting looking fish here. Um, like that almost looks like a, a Goliath. What what is what is that one that is uh, just it just went out? That's that oh. is Bohar snapper. And what about that one right there? That 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 one that he's got the. That's a normal uh, tiger. Uh, that's a normal grouper. Okay, keep going down, that's not, Ben. Uh, that's not Goliath. Really, really cool fish. Tons of GTs. There's no question about that. Yeah, that is. That is again, an, yeah. Now this looks like that one right there with the yellow shirt, Ben. You see the one, not right there. That that has a lot of markings similar to a lot of our groupers. What is that one called? Yes, that's again normal. That's a normal normal rock, grouper. Uh, rock okay, grouper. so yeah. we'll we'll get to this this real big Goliath here. I want to see see how that's different because that was one of the things that I that I thought was the most interesting about going to Australia were the differences in the fish. And there would be, there would be these fish that, uh, like a Spanish mackerel, for, for example, what, what I believe that you're calling a Spanish mackerel is much, sim much more similar to our Wahoo than it is what we call a Spanish mackerel. They get big, probably like, I don't know, 50 or 60 pounds, probably I think really good eating fish. But we would also have these other fish. Now that's a cool one. That yellow, yellow, that that one, Ben, right there. What do you call that? Yes, that's that is saddleback. Saddleback. That's saddleback group. Wow, that is a beautiful fish. Do you eat those? They are quite. Uh, good that is eating. a beautiful I fish. I think Ben has passed. Ben, ben passed has it. Passed, uh, yeah. All right, he'll start scrolling up, I'm and if you see it, it if you see it, you can stop him. Um, but just so many really, really cool fish that you have here. Um, it would be so amazing to come over there and do that fishing. Um, so we're gonna watch the airplane tickets and see uh, see how we can get over there to see you. Um, wow, amazing stuff. Amazing stuff. When when you're talking about the one, a couple more questions I have. When you're talking about these big GTs, and I was going to ask you what the weak link uh, was in in your system because I I kind of already knew that it was going to be the hook. Um, are you are you changing out the hooks on your on your plugs? Have you found hooks that that will will stand up to these fish? Um, what's what's the hook situation for you? Yeah. Uh, very quickly, Tom, I found that post on the grouper. It's dated the 9th of February, 2019. Okay. See if you so can find that one, So ben, ben can just see that on our 9th of February, 2019 okay. is the post. He's looking for it. He'll, he'll get yeah. that. Yeah. So coming back to the hooks, we change all the hooks. I never use any standard hooks. Um, BKK is now making some good hooks for this. Owners were good. Uh, then I think Gamakatsu is another good uh, brand. Mm -hmm. So hooks are very important. Super. Very, very important. And the other thing is... Uh, is that it? Uh, there it is. That's the and so that's what you're calling about. the Goliath grouper? That's what you call a Goliath grouper? Yeah. It's, it's, yes. We have, we have a fish. Um, see if you can pull up uh, our Goliath grouper. Look up a Florida Goliath grouper, Ben. Um, very similar body style. The body style looks almost exactly the same. The markings are all different, though. Um, and, and that, I think, looks a lot more like the Queensland groper that I caught in, in Australia. Interesting, though. I love how uh, you'll have these fish that are just slightly different, but they have many of the same habits. You can find them in many of the same places, but they're, they're just different in, in one place or another. Uh, and some of them... Uh, like some of the fish that we found were were really difficult to catch here, weren't difficult to catch in Australia. So that was a that was a blast for us because like the permit um, is a really hard fish for us to catch. But over there, they weren't that hard. 
So we could catch multiples there. So that that's uh, that's a pretty good shot of of one of our Goliaths. But a lot of times the um, the markings you can see on the tail where there's the kind of the the yellow markings and then the dark bands, and uh, that'll go all the way through the fish. See if you can find one that's more more lit up there, Ben. Uh, and they'll get as big as those other ones that you that you caught uh, in Florida. Really cool fish. Um, Okay, so the other, the last question I'm going to ask you, and we, I, I would add this to the to the hot seat. I asked you what your favorite fish was, and you said dogtooth tuna, but then we started talking about masir and GTs. So between the the GT and the masir, which one is your favorite? The GT. Yeah, yeah, and then between the GT and the dogtooth. I'll pick the dog tooth. The GT is easier to catch. Okay. Uh, the dog tooth is much more difficult. I think you land about 10% of, uh, if you're lucky, of what you hook. So dog tooth is, is up there. It's just a brutal fish. GT yeah. you land. GT yeah. you can, you know, after a while, you'll be able to figure out how to do GTs. And, but the dog tooth is, uh, you have to be, everything has to be just right. And if everything is just right, the sharks might get them. Mm. So, <laughs> wow, yeah, that's that's a fish that's very high on my list, uh, my life list of fish to catch. I've not caught a dogtooth tuna. It's one that I definitely want to want to catch, and uh, have some spearfishing friends that they actually spearfish the dog dogtooth tuna. If you can believe that, it's tough, but they 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 get them. Um, but that's incredible. Hey, pull up his Instagram one more time so people can see see where it is. And and Darren, if you can tell uh, tell everyone how they can follow you and possibly um, come to see you. We have people listening to this podcast from basically everywhere in the world. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if you picked up a couple of customers from this because your fishing looks amazing. And it's definitely has has entered my list of places that I'd like to go. Yeah, we'd be happy to have you over, Tom. Anytime. Well, tell them how. Anytime. Tell everybody Thanks how they can. This. Oh, absolutely! It's great to. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, you are a very um, avid and knowledgeable fisherman. Uh, the way that you're going through your setup and and everything, the people that listen to this are very interested in that and can apply that to different things that we do here. Um, but but I, I know that there will be people that would like to uh, to come see you. So how how would they do that? Okay, so the easiest way to come over to the Andaman Islands is basically you have to fly into mainland India and uh, Delhi, New Delhi would be the, the best known place to get to. Uh, from New Delhi, then you take a domestic flight over to Port Blair, which is the capital of the Andaman Islands. And it's also the start and end point for our trips. So once you get into Port Blair, then we kind of handle everything. It's like a all included solution, you know. So you just get there, then we take care of the rest. Um, to contact us, well, you have our Instagram page, which is Game Fishing Asia, and we also have our website put up on the page. So if you get in touch with us, there's or look at the website or the Insta page, contact us. Um, even on Facebook or whatever it is, we are all under the same brand, Game Fishing Asia. Okay. So there is, you could message us or, you know, any of the contact phone numbers there, just drop us a message or whatever, and we get back to you as soon as we can. Sometimes if you're out fishing, you might expect a delay, but otherwise uh, generally we get back to you the same day. Awesome. Well, Darren, it was really great to get to know you and uh, learn a little bit more about what you do over there. Uh, those fish that you're catching are amazing, and uh, we, we're definitely gonna, definitely gonna try to make our way over to the Andaman Islands. That's for sure. So thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. We'll stay in touch, and we'll do it again. Thanks for having me on board. Four in the morning. 
Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds up in the sky. One of the most legendary shows in the outdoors is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.